every light has a source. For us, that light, the light of our life, is God himself. There is no other source for us apart from him. Uh, and we looked at the second week, the fact that we're called to, and this is last Sunday, walk in the light, and that Jesus came and he rescued. I love the, these songs this morning because I'm thinking this is right in line with what we've been talking about, that love came down and rescued me. Jesus rescued us and delivered us from darkness into light, and then we're called to receive that light and then consistently rekindle those flames. And I want to kind of pick it up at that point. My title of my message this morning is Shine Brighter. So not just shine, but shine brighter. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read quite a few passages out of the book of Acts uh, in, in a couple other places, primarily though, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read though, starting out a passage out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. We read this last week. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples uh, after he has refer referenced himself and talked about himself as being the light of the world. He then turns the attention to the disciples and he says this, you are the light of the world. Say this for, for me, would you? I am the light of the world. Ready? Oh, you jumped the gun. You had your caffeine. Let's try that again. One, two, three. Now, let's say it like we mean it. Are we ready? One, two, three. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this analogy of the lamp being put under a bowl or being put on a stand. We don't really understand that because we don't light lamps like that in our, in our homes, do we? But we understand this, that the best placement for a light bulb and a light fixture is in the ceiling in the center of the room so that when you turn that switch on, it illuminates the whole room. And I don't know about you, I, I like bright light. Like 60-watt light bulbs, forget about that. And then like the 40-watt, like why bother, right? Why bother, I'm like, I want the 110, I mean, the 100 watt light bulb that like, it's bright, right? I want, I want it to, to glow in that place. I want to see at night. See, we are the light of the world. And God says, I've placed you in, in such a way that people would be able to see the glow of your life as you reflect my glory and that people would see your good deeds and glorify me. We're called to shine our light. To shine our lights in a dark world. And it doesn't, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that the world that we live in is dark. There's darkness all around us. God says, you are the light of the world. In Matthew 3, verse 11, we see this encounter that Jesus has with John the Baptist. John, who, his cousin who had gone before him was the one who was preparing the way and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River and, and and people are asking him questions about whether he's the Messiah or, or what his role in all of this is. And he says, listen, I'm not him. He's coming. I'm just preparing the way. I'm that voice in the desert, uh, you know, declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. I must, I must decrease. He must increase. And then he says these words, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with holy, the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with fire. I love that picture. I love that analogy. In fact, one of the, 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 the descriptions we have of the Holy Spirit, or the one, one of the ways that we describe him is fire. We talk about him, he's, he's described as wind. We see him as a dove. Uh, he's symbolized in water and oil, and there's all kinds of imagery that's used to depict the Holy Spirit. But fire, I, for me, is one of my favorites, because I get fire. I like fire, right? That, that could be kind of weird, but... I, when I was a kid, right? How many, how many kids, when you were a kid, you were just like enamored with fire? I love, I love a good campfire. I love the warmth. I love the light. And so I relate to that, the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I want to have, I want to make a couple of points this morning. We're going to talk about a narrative that we see in scripture, a story that unfolds that ultimately leads to us being here today. Something that happened 2,000 years ago that set things in motion that resulted directly with us being in this place today. So Jesus comes to fill us with fire. John says that he will come, Jesus will come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so my first point this morning is this, we can be filled with fire. You can be filled with fire. Now, now, here's the thing. Jesus, we are already, when we give our lives to him and we put our faith in him, we, we immediately begin to reflect his glory. Immediately. But there's something that God does through the work of the Holy Spirit to intensify that flame. In fire signs, they talk about a point of ignition when someone goes in, an arson investigator or a scientist goes in and examines a fire, let's say there's a fire in a building, they'll be, go in and they'll be able to trace through the charred remains where that fire started and where it burned the brightest or the most intense and, and determine what were the, the causes of that fire. And so um, they look for, for, for different indicators and fire is predictable in its behavior if they understand what the fuel is and what the, uh, what the, you know, how much oxygen was available or what the accelerant or the catalyst was in a, in a moment. How many of you, like from the 80s, are thinking about the movie Backdraft, right? Yeah, there's a few of you, right? Like I, when I was in high school, my best friend in high school was, a, was, a, was going through Fire Academy and so we... We talked about fire a lot. In fact, we went and saw that movie together, which was a total bummer because the whole time he's like, that's not accurate, that's not accurate, that's not accurate. And I'm like, dude, just be quiet and enjoy the movie, right? Stinking movie talkers. Um, but there's a science behind fire, and they can understand what caused it to happen. Um, I have a picture here of a, a wood fire. And something that we'd be familiar with if you have a fireplace in your home or maybe if you've been camping, you, you've seen a wood fire. Maybe the beach down, down at the beach, you've done a bonfire. And you understand this, that that fire burns and it's hot. Um, and it's bright, but it's limited, right? It's limited. You have to keep putting wood on it and it burns down pretty quickly depending on what the kind of wood is. Some wood burns a little faster. Those little bundles you buy like at Stater Brothers, right? <laughs> Gone. Like, you just see the money going up in flames. Um, uh, but if you burn a nice hardwood, it's going to burn longer. But, but we like that. I, I enjoy a good campfire. Um, but, but the brightness and the intensity of a wood fire is limited. On the other hand, there's things like phosphorus or magnesium and aluminum. When they burn, 
They burn with an intensity. They burn brightly. In fact, you would recognize a magnesium fire. Um, you might not, except for the scientists. I know there's scientists in the room who are like, well, you can do this. No. This is where we see magnesium fire most readily is in this fireworks. They use magnesium in these different chemicals to create light, bright light. My wife, Megan, is a huge fireworks fan, and she loves parades as well. We got to go uh, over Christmas uh, down to Newport, and they do the boat parade with the lights. And then after we got done, we walked all over, had dinner, watched the boat parade. It was so much fun, and then found out, to our surprise, that there was a fire, fireworks show off the, off the pier. It was like the perfect day. And we sat on the beach, and there were fireworks, and they were like super close so much fun. And there's just that ooh and that ah. Why? Because they're igniting these chemicals that create different colors with this intense light that we can see. And it impacts us. But there's a point of ignition. So a fire scientist and arson investigator will go in and go, where in this building, where in this fire was the point of ignition? Where did it start? For our purposes this morning, though, we want to look at a different kind of fire because there's a fire that's been burning for 2,000 years, but it had a point of ignition, and it continues to burn in various degrees of intensity. That fire continues to burn all around the world. That point of ignition we find in Acts chapter 2. As Jesus, after rising from the dead, appearing to the disciples in a number of different times, And then ascends to heaven. Before he ascends, he tells them and he gives them instructions about what to do. See, there was a point of ignition in the upper room in Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit fell on those believers, on the early church, that set things in motion that would literally change the entire world, the whole world. But before that could happen, Jesus prepares the conditions for the fire. He sets the conditions for the fire. You see, Jesus preached to crowds, right? We see that he went through the countryside and there were people that followed him. But when you press in a little bit more, you realize that Jesus spent the three years of his ministry really focusing on a small group of people. He didn't show up in Jerusalem and say, hey, I'm going to plant the biggest church the world has ever seen. We're going to have 15 services, and we're going to simulcast and, and live stream, right? And we're going to have a parking lot team for all the camels that are going to show up every Sunday. That's not what he did. Hello? Okay, that's a little bit funny, right? Thank you. Okay, it's okay to laugh. You're all serious this morning. He didn't do that. He ministered to people, he healed, he talked about the kingdom of God, but where he invested his time was in the small group of 12 and then a larger group of 120, and what he was doing was preparing them for fire. He was setting the conditions so that they would be ready to receive the gift that he was going to bring. He he spends time with them, encourages them, teaches them, trains them, equips them. He even sends them out to go and do ministry and brings them back and debriefs with them. How did it go? What did you see? What was your experience? And then he would correct them and send them again. Up until this moment where he is crucified, he rises again and he's sitting with them in Acts chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 8 says this, on one occasion... Jesus, while he was eating with them, gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Let me stop here for a second. He spent three years with them and has, in so many words said, listen, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. You're looking for me to restore Israel. I'm doing something so much bigger. This isn't about Israel. This is about my father's kingdom. And even in this moment, this decisive moment, they're still going, oh, is now the moment? Is this the time? And I love Jesus' grace and his mercy with them, his, com his compassion and his patience. He said to them, and it's not the time for you, not for you to know the dates and the times the father has set by his own authority. But then he says these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he gives us this command to go. What's interesting to me and what really stood out to me in, in studying this passage, which is extremely familiar to me and to, to, to most of us, we would say, yes, I know that verse. I know that passage, especially as a Pentecostal church. This is core for us. But here's what I realized. Jesus focused his ministry in a relatively small area of Israel. He didn't go to the ends of the earth. He didn't travel beyond those couple of hundred miles right around Jerusalem. He stayed focused in that area. But then he says to them, you're going to go to places I didn't go. You're going to go to and minister to people I didn't minister to. What he was in effect saying to them that you will shine and you will shine brighter. That there's going to be an impact for your life. That Jesus had more for them. In fact, previously they... It, you know, they were kind of arguing, kind of trying to understand where Jesus was coming from as he was saying that he had to leave. And they're going, no, 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 we don't want you to go. We like having you here. And he says, it's to your benefit that I go. Because when I go, then I'll be able to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who will teach you and guide you and empower you. So it's to your benefit. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. We here find this group of people, this 120, walking in obedience to what Jesus said. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait. Don't leave. Stay in this place for the, the gift that I've promised you. So Acts chapter 2, verse one, 1 through 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. There's no indication that Jesus gave them a heads up of what would happen. Because I don't think he could explain. I don't think he could have put into words. They wouldn't have got it. He just says, wait. Just wait. And something's going to happen that will change your life. You will be filled with power. And I'm thinking, they must be going, well, what does that mean? What's this going to look like? 
What, what, are, what are these words that you're saying? How are they going to impact my life? They couldn't have expected what happened. Yet as they're in this place, unified, worshiping together, walking in obedience to, to what Jesus had called them to, worshiping God together, and in that moment, in that upper room, the power of God falls. That the wind starts blowing inside the house like a mighty wind, right? He starts blowing, the Holy Spirit starts moving in that place and those flames come and rest on each of them. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And they began to speak in other languages. And there's this point of ignition. A fire is set in the believers that would change the world. See, we can trace this fire that we experience back to that moment. A couple of years ago, I got to be in Israel, and there's a lot of different places you can visit where they say, this is what we think was X, Y, and Z. There is a room that they believe was the upper room. We don't know if it was really the upper room, but we got to stand in an upper room in Jerusalem in the vicinity of where that first fire fell. And I just, with our group, and there were people from all over the world speaking all kinds of languages, worshiping God in that place, and something so powerful about being at the point of ignition, standing and praying and and praising God and and, and praying in my spiritual language and just worshiping Him in that place, in 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 that place where it all started. So impactful. But we have been feeling the impact of that moment in history ever since. In fact, it's amazing what happens next. We're going to get to that in a second. I was reminded this morning that Isaiah stood in the presence of God. In this vision, he opens his eyes and he's standing in the throne room of God. And he's overwhelmed. And God says, out over the crowd, he says... Who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. And it says that the angel took the coal from the fire and came and touched his lips and cleansed his lips and empowered him to go. When we see this picture all through Scripture, the fire of God falls on the lives of people to then catapult them, to ignite something that would send them forth into the calling that God has for them. See, the Holy Spirit is given to us here, to us, not just to the 12 or to the 120, to us. He's given by Jesus Christ to guide us, to teach us, to convict us of sin, to comfort us in our trouble and in in difficulty, to give us gifts for service in His kingdom. He's given to us to produce fruit in our lives, but the one I want to focus on this morning is this, that the Holy Spirit empowers us, that when we are filled with fire, we are empowered, that there is life that comes, there is motion that comes, there is energy that comes when flame is applied to something, whether it's in an internal combustion engine in a car or a steam generator on a ship or the furnace in a house. That when fire is applied, things change, things transform, motion happens even at a molecular level, that things start shifting and changing. And as God empowers us with the spirit of fire, stuff starts happening. 
Our lives start changing. Our communities become transformed. And that God uses people like you and me to do his work just like he did the disciples back then. See, so we are filled with fire, but then the next thing is this. That fire begins to, to spread. So it's spreading like fire or even like a wildfire. In fact, in California, we're familiar with wildfire, especially after this last season. Devastating wildfires. There's a picture of, of a, a wildfire burning us up towards Yosemite. That for miles and miles and miles, you can see that glow. Just a few years ago, even these foothills right here on fire. That glow seen all throughout this valley as those mountains go up. And, and, and when the conditions are just right, like they were for that paradise fire, the humidity, the, 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 the drought had left everything so dry, the wind that day, Everything that when that power line fell and hit that grass and ignited that fire, that within a few days, just a few days, it became the most costly and devastating fire that California had ever seen. Over 6,000 structures that were burned, burned at points where people were just trying to outrun the fire as it spread. Now, of course, that's a negative picture of fire, but we understand this. Fire spreads quickly. It spreads quickly, especially in the right environment. Jesus knew this, that the environment of the world was ready for the fire of God to fall. The environment of the world in that time, in the midst of the darkness, was ready for the fire to fall. And at this point of ignition in the upper room with the 120 and the 12 that he had prepared to receive that fire, something happened. And that fire began to spread. As we continue reading in Acts 2, starting at verse 14, says this, Peter, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Let me stop there for a second. What's happening in between time? They're praising God. They're speaking in other languages. It's, it's, in, it's in the morning time. So they've been up all night praising God, worshiping God. It's in the morning. And, and there's just a lot of activity. It says that Jerusalem was filled with people from all different nations. And they're going, what's going on here? They were accused of being drunk. Peter says it's not even 10 o'clock in the morning, right? We're not drunk. And so everyone's, so it made an impact. We understand this. It could be seen in that vicinity. People knew something was going on and it drew a crowd. Then Peter stood up and said, raised his voice and addressed them, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Okay, I'm going to pause again. I'm going to pause a few times here. How was how Peter going to explain something to them that just happened that he's never experienced before? Why was it that this guy who, for some reason, always struggled with saying the right thing, all of a sudden now, having just experienced something, stands up and says, let me explain to you what's going on. What changed? He was filled. He was filled with a spirit of understanding and of power that the Holy Spirit immediately starts revealing things to him and this boldness comes up. I've I got to believe that the rest of the disciples in the room are like, whoa, where'd that come from? Yet at the same time knew where it come from because they were walking through the same thing. Let me explain to you, listen carefully what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It wasn't even 10, it was nine. 
No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Say all people. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. They will speak the truth of God in a world that needs to hear it. You see, Jesus didn't recruit professionals. He didn't go to the temple and say, Hey, I need 12 of your best people. Give me the best scribes, the best Pharisees, the best priests, the best teachers of the law. I need the best of the best. He goes and he finds the fishermen and the tax collectors and the riffraff, and he invests in their lives as he brings about change in their lives. You know what people can't argue with is the change that God brings about in your life. You can argue theology all day long, but your testimony is your testimony and what God has done in your life, no one can take that away, right? Well, the theology, that doesn't matter to me. What has God done in my life? What has he transformed? I'm going to sing his praises because of what he has done. And so he takes this group of people who recognize that Jesus has changed their lives, ordinary, broken People, he invests in them, he prepares them for fire, and when that fire catches, oh my goodness, watch out. And Peter stands up and he preaches this message. He speaks the truth. It's a lot longer. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's worth, just read the book of Acts. If you've not read it from, front, you know, from beginning to end, read the book of Acts. Continuing in verse 41 says this, those who accepted his messages were baptized. Listen to this, church. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Come on, church growth at its best. 3,000 were added. Now, Jesus had people who followed him, but you know what's interesting is that when Jesus started saying hard things, they left. Right, except for the, the disciples, and he's like, what about you? Are you going to leave as well? And they're like, where are we going to go? We're all in. We've been following you for three years. You've changed our lives. So we're in it. And so he prepares them. But in this moment is now these, the disciples, these broken people. Peter, of all people, gets up and preaches. 3,000 were added to their number. And then it goes on to say this, one of my absolute favorite portions of scripture they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer and everyone was filled with awe the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and had everything in common they were together and had everything in common They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, listen to this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who added to their number? 
the Lord. As they simply allowed their lights to shine brighter, more people and more people and more people showed up. More people came. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. That's in two chapters. Acts 5, 12 through 14, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and the, and the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. There was something powerful happening, and those that, that didn't get it were, were kind of standoffish, but those who were drawn and joined in were welcomed in, and the church continues to grow and grow and grow. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now finally, after the gospel starts spreading, the, the, this ragtag bunch of filled with fire, they're preaching. Now the priests are turning and saying, I want to be a part of what's happening here. These are a selection of some of the verses in Acts that describes there's more. There's more. I talk about how they continue to minister, that people would want to just, even as Peter walked by, be hit by his shadow because people were getting healed because his shadow was passing over them. That this man was so filled with the fire of God that an impact was being made in that place, that point of ignition. See, the early church grew at a mind-boggling pace. I shared some of this during my Christmas series, but I want to pack this a little bit more. Um, Alan Hirsch writes in his book, uh, The Forgotten Ways, he talks about the missional impetus of the early church. They were people on mission. And I love this phrase, that the church of God doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. The church of God doesn't have a mission. Now, we have a mission statement as a church that helps just kind of direct our energy and, and help us make decisions. But the reality is we are on mission from God just the same way the disciples were 2,000 years ago. That we are God's people on kingdom assignment in our communities, in our homes, in the places that we work. See, the church of God doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. And that early church, according uh, to the research that Alan Hirsch did, this is what they found. In AD 100, so, so a few decades after we read about what's happening in the book of Acts, it's estimated that there were at that point 25,000 believers in the known world, in, the, in, in that region. 25,000 in AD 100. By AD 310, so 210 years the church had grown from 20, 000, uh, 25,000 to 20 million. 20 million. Now, here's a few things to remember about that time and during that period. In most places, Christianity was an illegal re religion. Not... not completely through that entire 200 years, but for the majority of those 200 years, Christianity was not a legal religion. At its best, they were tolerated, and at the very worst, they were severely persecuted. 
This is the other thing. They didn't have any church buildings. Can I get an amen? Amen. They didn't have church buildings. They did not have structures and edifices. They, They didn't have buildings. They met in homes. They met in parks. They met at other people's churches. They met at the temple. They found places to be together. And, and did you catch that they met together every day? They, were, they just couldn't help being together because there was this common thread about what God had done in their lives. So there were chapels. In fact, if you go to, uh, um, to Capernaum on the north shore of Galilee, you'll find they, they've discovered where, uh, where Peter's house was. And there's a mosaic, a tile mosaic at the door that talks about that, that this was Peter's house. And this is one of the places where they held church. It was a home that was a church. Um, but it, but it, was, it was more likely that they would meet in public places or in homes. But they didn't have any formal structures like we do and, and we even expect. They didn't have any scriptures as we know them. They didn't have the Bible as mentioned before, they, they were busy writing the Bible, right? They were the story. So they didn't have the word of God as we have it. Please open your Bibles too. They didn't have that. But they had testimonies of what God was doing and they spoke about those things. They didn't have an institution, the professional form of leadership normally associated. Now there was some structure we see that in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is appointed as the one who would basically do hospitality and care for those who were hungry and, and care for the needs of, of the poor that were coming. And he takes his team, which by the way, love the story of Stephen because here you think he's been relegated to, oh, you're just going to go do hospitality. One of the reasons that our hospitality ministry and our, our host team is so powerful is it's that first encounter with people. And it says of Stephen, as people were coming through the line to get food, that the Spirit of God was falling and people were getting ministered to. And sometimes what we look as less than opportunities to serve in the body of Christ are the exact places where God wants our gifts to flow. But we get this idea that there's a hierarchy and that some jobs are more important than others. In the church, in in the early church, that didn't exist. There was no structure as we associate it today. They didn't have seeker-sensitive services or youth groups or worship bands or seminaries or commentaries. None of those things. They just gathered and worshiped and were taught and broke bread and and they were irresistible as the fire of God burned in that community. And check this out. They actually made it hard to join the church. Imagine that. They made it hard to join the church. It says by the, le- the late second century, aspiring converts actually had to go undergo significant initiation an in initiation period to prove that they were worthy, that they actually had gone through a life change process because of Jesus. And in the midst of this, over 200 years, the church explodes from 25,000 to 20 million. We can't fathom that kind of growth. In fact, what we understand of the church in the U.S. right now is we're declining rapidly. That mainstream denominations especially are losing people faster than they're gaining. And as generations pass away, they're losing congregants 
And, and, and it's not uncommon to go and see these beautiful buildings and walk inside and there's a handful of people. What we're seeing today is not what we saw then. And we have all the technology and we have the Bible and we have the seminaries and we have seminars and conferences and lectures and all of these things. Could it be, church, that we're missing the most important thing? We need the power of God to fall. If he did it then, he can do it now. And I know this, he wants to. He desires to. He's looking for people that would be available to him to say, Holy Spirit, fall in my life. Bring fire and ignite my life so I can shine brighter. And we have to move away from this idea that I attend a church and support the ministry of the church and of the pastor. That's not the church. If anything, Ephesians 4 tells, it, tells us that my job is to support your ministry. Oh, it's quiet. That God has called you, he's gifted you, he's empowered you, he wants to fill you with fire and release you on the world to spread like wildfire. So we have to ask some hard questions. Why aren't we seeing that? I've mentioned, I mentioned at our membership class on Wednesday, I, I get probably eight to ten emails a week from people trying to sell me programs to help grow our church. If you pay us $1,000 or more, we'll give you our eight proven steps to grow your church. And my, my, every time I see them, I'm like, I already have it in Acts chapter 2. I'm good. Right? Because if it's, if it's anything other than that, it, honestly, it's not going to work. You might attract a few people who are interested, but it doesn't bring the change. Third point this morning. We get filled with fire, and then we're going to keep fanning that fire. We keep fanning that fire. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he says this, Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother uh, Lois, and then in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. I love the heritage there, by the way. Isn't that great? You see the family being discipled. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So, no, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. Isn't that a great in invitation? Would you just come and join me and suffer for the gospel? Wait, Pastor Barry, isn't the gospel supposed to make my life easier? No. Pastor Francis Chan says this. If we, if we were meant to be comfortable, we wouldn't have needed a comforter. In the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, does God want to make your life miserable? Not at all. But he has not called us to be a people who settle and become comfortable. He's called us to be a people on mission. And when you are on mission, you put yourself in places that are not comfortable. That sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus is not comfortable. It requires something of us. It stretches us. Even the extroverts in the room. I'm, I'm, if you have not guessed it, I'm an extrovert, very extrovert. 
But, but I remember when I was a kid, it was like the thing to do was door-to-door evangelism. Scared the life out of me. I'm like, nope, not doing it. But that was like, this is our strategy. This is what we're doing. But I tell you what, through relationship and just sitting with people and starting to share faith, okay, it's at least, but it still requires something. But we don't do these things out of our own strength. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gifts that are in you by the laying on of hands. So there's a couple of things that are happening. For the disciples in the upper room, the power of God falls. They receive the Holy Spirit. He blows into that room, sets them on fire. They start speaking in other languages, and they are empowered in that moment. It's the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of or with the Holy Spirit. But then what happens is that Paul says he laid hands on Timothy and that there were gifts that were imparted to him in that moment to equip him for the work that God had called him to. If you want to read about those gifts, you can check it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't, we don't have the time to, to go there this morning, but we know this, that, that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, empowers us and gifts us with giftings beyond our natural or normal ability. Can I say that again? It's beyond what you can do in your own strength. Peter did not have the ability, we know because it's documented, to get up and string a coherent sentence together without putting his foot in his mouth. But in this moment, he stands up under the power of the Holy Spirit and explains this thing, and 3,000 people are saved. God is so strategic. He didn't pick perfect people. He didn't pick the pros. Why? Because if he did, then where would we be? But he picks a group of people who are available to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the transforming work of the cross, and he empowers them and gifts them and says, now, go and change the world, and they do. And he picks them so that we can say, well, if God can use Peter, he can use me. If God can use that group of guys and that group of women to change the world, why not now? Why not here? Why not in this place? Why not in our lives? Fan into flame. One of the things that is implied here is that the fire can start dying down. That the flames can start diminishing. That when the fuel starts running out, when the fire is not being fed, that it will start dying out. And so there's this constant process for us, with us and the Holy Spirit to say, Holy Spirit, fill me today. Fan those flames. Bring your fire to bear in my life. Purify me, convict me, transform me, and then release me on the world. Release me on the world. I want us to move into a time of application. Because these are good things to talk about but it would be so sad if we just talked about it. That the same Holy Spirit that Jesus gave to the disciples in that upper room is present here. He's available today in this place. And maybe you're in a place you're going, I've never heard this before. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm gonna invite Jacques and the team to come up. They're just gonna play quietly. We're going to give a couple of points of response for you this morning. 
I'm going to ask that we stand to our feet. Jesus said to the disciples that to go and to wait. And in the midst of that waiting, there was prayer. There was fellowship. There was unity. There's some special things happening. And can I tell you, it's probably not unlike what's happening here today. Now, we're not breaking bread, but hopefully some of you will go to lunch together. Invite someone to lunch today. But we do that as a, as a part of our expression of the church in this place. We love breaking bread. We love fellowship. We love being together. God wants to pour out his spirit as much today as he did 2,000 years ago for his light to shine. And so here's my, here's my invitation. If you desire to be filled with the spirit of God, you already know Jesus, you're walking with him, you have a relationship with him, but you're saying, Pastor Barry, I want the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. If that's you this morning, I'm just gonna ask that you do this, that you simply raise your hand. Nice and high. We're not closing our eyes. This is a public declaration. I, this, is, this is something, it's a bold step, right? God calls us into maybe uncomfortable things. But if that's you, would you just simply raise your hand nice and high? Thank you. See that hand. Hands up all over this place. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we worship you. We worship you, God. Just keep your hands raised. Anyone else, if you want to, maybe you're, maybe you're going, I, I've been filled with the Spirit, Pastor Barry, but, but I need a little freshness. If that's you, just raise your hands. This is, this is God moving in the midst of his people. Would you begin to ask him? Jesus said that, a, that what father, when he asks for bread, would give him a stone? The promise of the word of God, the promise of Jesus is this. When we ask, we receive. So what he's saying is, ask. So in your words, would you ask Jesus to fill you with his spirit today? Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here that you would fill each of these, Lord. Fill us with power. Fill us with your spirit, oh God. We want to be empowered, Lord Jesus, just like those disciples were. We want to be empowered, Lord, to do your work, to go into the world, to go into our community, Lord, and, and see the lost. Those who are walking in darkness, Lord, come into the light. Cause our lights to shine brighter. God, we don't want a wood fire. We want a phosphorus fire. We want a fire, Lord, that radiates out of our lives because of your power at work in us. Church, as you continue to pray, just like the disciples in that upper room, there were things that happened that they didn't experience. I mean, that they didn't, they didn't know they were going to experience and were new to them. The wind blowing on the inside of a building, fire coming and resting on them. And it says they spoke in other languages. You might find that as the Holy Spirit falls on you, you begin to praise God in a language you don't know. And it's okay. It's perfectly normal for that to happen as the Holy Spirit empowers but would you expect God to do something in you would you as a congregation can we just speak praise to God would you use out loud can we just lift him high we worship you Holy Spirit you are worthy of our praise Jesus we need your power Holy Spirit we need you in this place thank you God I want to move on to the next thing, and it would be this. Paul says he laid hands on Timothy. He was, 
Paul was in a position of authority in Timothy's life. And in a moment, he had laid his hands on him and anointed him. And there was an impartation of power and an impartation of the gifts of the Spirit that happened. Not because Paul was something special. It was just that Paul was filled with the Spirit of God and was in a place that he was, was enabled to do that. And there's something about agreement when believers come together and we agree on these things. See, I think we've bought into this lie in the church that it's my faith. It says in Acts 2, they were together and had everything in common. They were a part of each other's lives. It's powerful when we agree. You'll notice that we have some leaders and pastors around the room. If you would like to get to have someone lay hands on you and pray for you and anoint uh, you with oil and pray that there would be an impartation of the gifts of the Spirit as we see them in 1 Corinthians 12, this is a moment to do that. And I would say be bold. Maybe you're standing here going, I don't know, this is a little awkward, this is a little uncomfortable. This is a safe place. This is a safe place. We celebrate what God is doing here. If that's you, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to ask the worship team to just lead into a time of worship. But if you want someone to pray over you and lay hands on you, move out of your seats and just move to, to, to one of these. I'm going to ask Tom and Deb, Pastor Tom and Deb, would you guys come in and be up towards the front right here? We have people in the back. As we worship, would you move? Maybe it's been a while and you, again, you just need to be fired up a little bit. Someone to stand with you in agreement, to fire those things up, to fan into flame the gifts. We'd love to agree with you. So we're going to move into time of worship, um, and then uh, Jesse will close our time together. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you that the fire that started 2,000 years ago, the same fire that fell in that room is available to us. Holy Spirit, fall on your people. God, as we even prepare for next Sunday and Vision Sunday and looking ahead to what you have for us as a congregation and looking ahead to what you have for us in this community, Father God, we want to declare right now we can't do it without you. We can't do it without your power. We can't do it without your fire. We can't do it, Lord, without your direction and your correction and your teaching. So Holy Spirit, come fill this place. We receive from you. We welcome you. We give you praise. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.